Hello, I'm with Ron Kurtz. Hi, Ron. Hiya. How are you, Serge? Hi. So um, this conversation, we're going to talk maybe a little bit more about you uh, personally and mm -hmm. your role. And um, just um, uh, before starting the recording, I was sharing with you that sense of uh, seeing you as somebody who loves, has a lot of pleasure from self-discovery and from sharing the pleasure of self-discovery with others. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, there is, for me, a, a great pleasure in the work and in just helping find a way to, to uh, bring something out of the person's unconscious that we can resolve and have them feel pretty... Well, the, the, there's another step. Once... Once the issue is resolved, it means that they can take in a kind of emotional nourishment or mental nourishment that they weren't able to take in before. And it's very much like somebody in the desert getting a cold glass of water. It tastes that good, you know, if you waited all your life for something. An example would, a simple example would be somebody who has a chronic underlying fear. Uh, that a lot of people have something like that. And now suddenly they feel safe. Suddenly they realize, in this place, I'm safe. It feels marvelous. It is, as you say, pleasure, pleasurable. Yeah, it feels marvelous. And there's this analogy of somebody who's been in the desert and has a, a cold drink to have. So something that you've been needing and also something that is so necessary. Yeah, yeah, for, you know, to, to have a complete life to be available for something that you weren't available for, a good thing that you're available for now that you weren't available before. That, that is, uh, that's the goal of the work, you know, to find those things. And, and so that goes with um, uh, your not wanting to approach things from a point of view of uh, medicine, pathology. Right, right. I think of it as... I don't want to get too technical, but I think of it as old adaptations that haven't been re-examined. You know, you, you, you had some situation probably in your early life that you had to build protection around, and you still have that going when you don't need it anymore. And you, I see that all the time. <laughs> and so, um, how has it evolved for you? Oh, let's see. Now, which you said it, and I don't know which it evolved. The, the whole thing. The whole thing. <laughs> well, it's a big thing, and it was lots of. There were lots of big steps since I started out. Uh, basically imitating the, the medical model that I had been acquainted with, and. And eventually, I tried some things, and some uh, some events happened that changed my mind about something. And piece by piece, I evolved into what I do now. And the the big evolutions were realizing, first of all, that I didn't need to take a history, that I didn't need to uh, try to ask a lot of questions to find out about this person. I could find out about them by looking and listening to, to the tone of voice. I didn't have to follow the words very much. Once in a while, a key word comes up. And then I learned about loving presence. I learned about how to 
put myself in a state of mind that, find, that automatically finds something pleasurable about the person, something that, is, uh, that evokes uh, good feelings in me, and that those good feelings are communicated uh, non-verbally from, from my uh, limbic to their limbic, you know. So if I'm in a state where I really feel good about this person, instead of looking for their pathology, for example, that that affects them. They they that changes the context for them. They 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 have a friend, you know. And not only do they have, a, they don't think they don't have to think about this. This just happens at the physiological level. Not only do they have a friend, because I'm doing things that demonstrate very some subtle things too that I understand what's going on, they have a friend who is intelligent enough to, to follow them, to understand what's going on. And that's a great context to work mm. from. A friend who understands them and who is intelligent enough to follow them and provide the, uh, the context and... Uh, yeah. 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 So those, those are big evolutions for me. And then I learned a couple of things about... Very, very important things about using silence. When, when to watch the client so you know when they need you to be silent, when they need me to be silent. That's very important um, because it gives them a chance to find their way. And the, the way they'll find their way is these spontaneous impulses will come up, uh, which really direct the process for me. I've, I typically follow whatever comes up spontaneously in the client. Do something with it. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, the last thing, I've always known this, but there's a taboo in, in general academic psychology about comforting clients, about touching them. And Well, I do that all the time. Not personally, because I have assistants who yeah. do that. So... Uh, that is very significant, very important. It's, what, it's one of the things that was missing during mm-hmm. these early adaptations. Nobody comforted this person. Yeah. So there is a sense of extending um, the uh, the setting as one where there is this comfort. Yeah. And um, and when you talk about mindfulness, what I notice uh-huh. as I see you work is that you don't spend a lot of time telling people what mindfulness is, but you create it with your presence so that people get it through the resonance, through the context you provide. Right, the tone of voice, the pace. The tone of voice, the pace. I also can can watch for the external signs of mindfulness in the other person Mm -hmm. so that when I'm doing that, I can begin to see when they're being mindful. And then I can do what I have to do. Yeah, so that as you notice what is there of the mindfulness, you're helping them get more into it. Yeah. And uh-huh. uh, and so, uh, in a way, instead of just uh, you know talking to people about it, you simply lead them through it and through the yeah. experience of being mindful. It's, it's a little bit like a dance. Yeah. Well, I know the dance, and I'm kind of dancing with them until they get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's uh, I got that from Feldenkrais. Okay, so but the 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 dance there is that as you notice these indicators, yeah, uh, it helps you to be more in tune with them, yeah. and as you are in tune with them and you 
slow the pace and you bring it to that more mindful thing, they in turn are more able to follow your pace. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful experience on that level. You know, mm-hmm. to it's more intimate. It's it's there's no there's no the distance evaporates when I work. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, over the years, also you have simplified exactly. the model. Yes, yes. <clears throat> I was listening to a talk by Murray Gell-Mann about beauty and and science or in physics or something like that. How how the the most important discoveries always there's some kind of simplicity in them. He talked about the formulas mm-hmm. getting simpler and. <clears throat> I was. I had another thought about that, but it flew out of my head. <laughs> It'll come back, perhaps. But something about the simplicity, the you yeah, know, and, yeah. and how the yeah, you have to drop what's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. There were so many unnecessary things I had been doing that I don't have to do, um, and a big general one. This is very hard for some people to get. Is it is? Don't slip into a conversation. It's I've, it's a dance. You know, mm-hmm. it's not about talking and questions and figuring out. It's about you have to do some figuring, but you better be dancing while you're doing it. You know, you don't stop. Oh yeah, now I remember. It's a quote from some scientist who said, uh, "Every great leap in science was occasioned by." The giving up of a great prejudice. <laughs> I thought we had to give up our prejudices. You know, about disease and about uh, defenses. I don't call them defenses. Mm. These are management behaviors. This is somebody managing their behavior, managing mm. their experience. It's not personal. It's not like I'm attacking them. They're they just have this adaptive habit of protecting themselves that way, managing their experience that way. So, you know, there is a dance at different levels. There is the dance that you have with the person you're working with, uh-huh. and then the person, the dance that the person has had with their environment yeah. and how they have learned some adaptations to it. Right, right. So I, we have to learn a new dance. Yes. Yeah. We have to... Because your 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 mind will create uh, the idea that this is similar to some old situation. You know, you've got a whole set of possible situations. You pick one, and that's the one you think you're in. And so you won't you won't pick the ones that you have already shut out, like you, you think no nobody loves me or it's never really safe or something terrible could happen. You know, they people have all of these. And, and um, they don't see safe situations or situations where they're being loved or stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I, I have to help them uh, experience something new, something new and positive. So you 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 see the dance they're in. You see the steps they're making as uh-huh. an adaptation to uh, you know the uh-huh. 
their environment, yeah. and then you lead them into the possibility of there being another way to dance. Yeah, I help them discover that. I help them first. I have to help them discover what what they're doing automatically, mm-hmm. which is like making the unconscious conscious. And I do that by studying the external signs, like with indicators. Mm-hmm. Certain behaviors, certain habits, even if they're postural habits or facial expressions or tone of voice or pace, those habits suggest to me what might be the adaptations they're making, mm-hmm. which means that I, I, I know what kind of experiences they're trying to manage. I like to, yeah, I like to give the example of the, the person who doesn't look at you straight and has their eyes and they're looking at you like they're skeptical or doubtful. No, I feel like they must have been betrayed. They must mm. have been lied to or tricked or something, or manipulated. So I have a good guess about what it mm-hmm. is, and therefore I can I can test my guesses using these experiments with the client and mindfulness. Yeah, and that's it's very simple. The but process so, yeah, is you, very simple. You say very simple, and it's very quick. It's not something where it takes you a long history, or you know, just look at somebody and in a moment. Yeah. There's something that catches your attention, yeah. like the eyes that yeah. are not looking yeah, yeah, yeah. straight. You saw that the other day. Huh? Yeah. Some of them were really fast. Yes. <laughs> yes. But it's possible if you practice thinking mm-hmm. that way and working that way, they become obvious. These these indicators become obvious. Everybody's mm-hmm. got one. Nobody's out. Nobody's in neutral out there. Yeah. If he is, he's a Buddha. Follow him <laughs> around. <laughs> Borrow it. <laughs> Or some peace of mind. But so the um, very quickly, yeah. you get an indicator, yeah. and that indicator gives you a guess, and yeah. it's not a diagnosis; it's a guess. And so it's that, always tested as yes. a guess, yeah. But I, I have a lot of experience with indicators, so it's probably a good guess. Mm-hmm. Probably a good guess. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not bragging. It's just a matter of you can learn these things. Yeah. If you start looking for them. And then you play, you experiment, you and test. Experiment. And the experiment is designed to help this person realize what's going on. You know, so, so the person who's doubtful or skeptical or been betrayed, I would say something like, well, I get ask them to be mindful when I see that they're mindful and they tell me that they're mindful. I'll say something like, you can trust me. Which is exactly what they can't do, mm-hmm. and they'll get a reaction that tells them that. You know, they'll hear a voice that say, "Don't do it," or "Bullshit," or you know, there's something will come up. They'll start to be afraid. Yeah. So I, I have evoked this situation, a piece of the situation that created that adaptation, and from there we can easily. So in a way, what's been happening is that um, from that indicator from that piece of uh-huh. body-related behavior, yeah. uh, you see what the uh, the crux of the person's drama is. Could be, yeah, and something like that. And with just a few words, uh, you you just create the, the drama. You bring it to uh, consciousness. consciousness. Awareness, yeah. So it's not like asking questions about it or anything like that, which will not work generally. Uh, you do an experiment in mindfulness, the person has a reaction, mm-hmm. if it's a good experiment, accurate. 
and they can't doubt their reaction. They could they could doubt my words. I could tell them, well, I think you're afraid. I don't think you trust people. Well, yeah, I trust people. You know, you could do that yeah. for days. Yeah. But once they see their own reaction, there's no doubt. It's not. It's not like it. There's no. There's no argument. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not. It's not a question. It's not you know you're you're bypassing the judgment part. Yeah, yeah, you're just yeah. going into the. It's not a diagnosis. Yeah, you know, it's a it's a real live experience, and if I'm silent at those times, if I let that uh, experience sink in, uh, very often a memory will arise mm-hmm. that makes sense of it, and that's when we can deal with the pain of that memory and. The, and to resolve it somewhat, help it, help the person make sense of what happened. Like very often in Germany, I'll have to reach a place in people where I tell them, "Well, you know, I think your parents must have been affected by the war. I want them to understand mm-hmm. and make sense of what happened to them." Yeah, and it helps. That's that's one of the ways it gets resolved. So you, know, you use you use hey. That's just like the movie. <laughs> In, are you getting messages from outer I, space? I don't that's know. an encounter. Yeah, that's yes. a close encounter. It's man. a very yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm but so for the ship. It's a it's a perfect uh, accompaniment to that notion of making sense. You know, you were using that expression of making sense, yeah. um, and um, and and I related to this notion of um, self discovery. Self discovery, so, yeah, yeah. yeah so you, di- you discover this memory, and there's situations, because it may be more than one similar situation, that created your behavior, mm-hmm. that created your adaptation, which is now running your your behavior. So. That's discovery. I mean, you discover how you're how you're organized. You discover why you do what you do, and and in, when that's conscious, you can change your mind. Yeah. When it's unconscious, you can't. But so, in a way, it's the same thing as a quest for purpose. Um, you know, that that sense of organization. It's not a purpose that's imposed from the outside. Right. But discovering how you're organized to face the environment in a certain yeah, way. Yeah, how you be, yeah, how you became who you are. Yeah. yeah. And your way of doing things and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. And you get a sense of freedom in that. Mm-hmm. You start to be free. Which is exactly what the spiritual traditions are about mindfulness. You know, it will free you up. Yeah. But so maybe that's good, as you mentioned, the spiritual traditions about mindfulness. Many people uh, are intimidated by the word mindfulness. They are. And uh, think, yeah, okay, you can do all this stuff if people are in mindfulness, but the trick is to bring them there. Uh-huh. So for somebody who has not experienced, who has not seen your work, uh-huh. uh, you know, maybe the word mindfulness would seem like a big barrier. Okay, so we could simplify it. You just have to be calm enough and, and attentive to your own reactions. We don't have to take mindfulness at all. You know, if you're calm enough and studying, or, uh, available to, to notice your reactions, which means you have to relax your activity. You can't be busy doing something if you're going to notice your reactions. That's all they need to do. You don't have to spend six hours sitting in meditation. 
Yeah. Yeah. That helped me right there. That's clear, simple. Yeah. So just enough to notice, just yeah. enough, just, you know, just quiet enough to just pay attention to what's happening. Right. And what, yeah, what happens spontaneously? What happens, what, what is evoked automatically from these little experiments? And I notice you don't necessarily use the word mindfulness when you talk to people. You talk about noticing what's happening. Yeah. It's not necessary for two reasons. One is, that's easy. It's much easier to understand if you explain it in simple terms. Mm-hmm. And I can watch them and see. I can pace them a little bit and watch when they get mindful. You know, there are signs of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. So, so in a yeah, way, you don't have to use the word. So in a way, what's more important is your own mindfulness as a as a therapist, as a you know, as a presence, yeah, 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 yeah. and the ability to observe your own and other people there. Yeah, I have to be present for everything that happens in the in the sequence. You know, I have to watch all the changes. So there's a kind of presence you have to have. It's, when I talk about loving presence, there is a. It's necessary to be really glued to what's going on right now. Yeah. With, so, th- so with you and them. So that loving presence is uh, another definition, another way of focusing or maintaining or staying in that state of mindfulness for, yeah. as a therapist. Yeah. I, I never equated those, but that's that's close. Mm-hmm. Presence is definitely part of mindfulness. Yeah. Maybe compassion too. Maybe I have to think about it. Some <laughs> <more>. <laughs> so, um, in your own. Um, journey yeah. of um, getting there. Um, can you think about people or experiences or events uh, that you can think now as building blocks? You know, I, I wrote, a, I made a long list last <laughs> night because I have to give a talk. I don't, I'm not going to talk. I'm just going to say thanks, but. Um, I was looking for those significant people and what they did. Well, several of them, from from back in graduate school, several of them encouraged me. Once to go to one was in, to go to group therapy. Another one was to do workshops with her Stella Rhythm, and uh, several people encouraged me that way. I did workshops with lots of different people over the years as a co-therapist or a co-workshop leader. And one really big event, I think the event that sealed my fate, okay, mm. was a workshop I did as a participant with Will Schutz at San Francisco State. I just got, I was excited for weeks. I knew that's what I wanted to do. Mm. I watched what he did and I knew I wanted to do that. And that really I made that decision right then and had pursued it ever since. Mm. So what was it in that experience that was so powerful? Well, it was totally different from what I would have expected from psychotherapy, you know. It had it had experiments. You'd have people try things out. <clears throat> he had us do exercises, you know, these kind of experiential exercises. And I just got so excited. It was so much fun. Mm. And it was so fascinating to watch him work. It was dramatic, and I just knew that was 
I didn't want this same dry conversational stuff. I had read Freud when I was 14, and I said, <laughs> this, is not, this is not the stuff. Mm-hmm. I knew even then that he had, he had more variables than he had data points. You know, he could, yeah. he could explain anything. <laughs> right, right. But he was having fun doing it. He was having fun, and he had some good insights, too. He was a good man. But it, it wasn't science mm-hmm. as, much as, as much as it could have been. And now it's getting very scientific. I like that. And, and then uh, uh, another guy named Ken Lux, who I went to graduate school with, who was a psychologist and a, a psychotherapist, he encouraged me. He set me up in private practice, and I, that's when I first started doing therapy for a living. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that led to one thing after another. Finally, I wrote this book with Hector Prestera about body reading, and yes. I, which I learned from uh, someone from John Paracas. I mean, I went down and took him photographs, and he read them for me. And I mm-hmm. could see what he was saying, and I knew those people. They were my patients. So, But I remember from that John book, was a big influence. The, the idea also that, um, you know, the you were describing the exchange of information between the various people you were doing, the other therapists, uh-huh. and um, the sense of looking at each other's photographs or looking at, you know, and... Uh, and of paying attention to it both in terms of uh, a subject but also the emotions that were brought up. Right, right. So that yeah. the sense of experimenting with your own, um, yourself as a... As a sensor. As a sensor. Yeah, yeah. We did a lot of that in the trainings. Yeah. What is, the, what is your reaction when you see this or when somebody says that? Or if I, I have people close their eyes and get mindful and I have somebody else standing there... And I have them just open their eyes for a moment and close their eyes again and notice their reaction to that. So mm. what's your reaction? You have to you have to sensitize yourself to getting that kind of information and doing it consciously. We do it unconsciously all the time. Yeah. But to do it consciously that makes you uh that puts you in a position to really work with people. Is this thing still jumping? Yeah, no, it's working. Jumping. It's still alive. It's yeah. still alive. Another sensor, another indicator. Super. <laughs> so is it? Uh, we're getting close to the end here. I think so. Yeah. I think we could know any time. Maybe okay. just maybe say a few words okay. to uh, to end it. Find whatever needs to be said at this moment. Well, I'm thinking now of. I don't know how much more refinement I will ever, I will discover in this method, mm. but I know that I want to. Uh, I I want to write more. I have you know I. I have about five hundred videotapes. Wow, and I I'm going to do another hundred this summer, and I have a very very professional camera guy, mm-hmm. so I'll do. Get lectures and, uh, and sessions. I have a big library of these yeah. things because I want to. I want to leave this body of material as my legacy. I have a thousand pages of writing, mm-hmm. you know, that I could. I want to clean that up, and I, I want to get this material archived somewhere. Mm-hmm. SBGI is offered to do that, mm. so that will. That was my older years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess that's 
But, you know, I'm always surprised. I always yeah. get surprised by some new refinement. Mm-hmm. You don't expect it. You read a book and you realize, oh, wow. Mm. So maybe, maybe there'll be more. But it, it looks pretty... It's hard, it's hard to believe how it could be more simple. Yeah, 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 yeah. it is. Who knows? <laughs> every, every change somehow. Yeah. And, and uh, <clears throat> Murray Del Man was talking about the peeling the onion, you know, at every level of this onion that gets simpler and simpler, there is something similar about the mathematics, is what mm. he was saying. So I'm going to look for this now. I'm going to look for what's similar from these different stages mm. of this of the development of the work. I haven't tried that yet. But yeah. What is the essence of those, the, the mathematics, you know? What is the essence of these similarities? Maybe I'll find it. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Ron. Thank you. This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. Wow. Mm. So maybe, maybe there'll be more, but it, it looks pretty... It's hard, it's hard to believe how it could be more simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. Who knows? <laughs> every, every change somehow. Yeah. And, and uh, <clears throat> Murray Del Man was talking about the peeling the onion, you know, at every level of this onion that gets simpler and simpler, there is something similar about the mathematics, is what mm. he was saying. So I'm going to look for this now. I'm going to look for what's similar from these different stages mm. of this of the development of the work. I haven't tried that yet. But yeah. What is the essence of those the, the mathematics? You know, what is the essence of these similarities? Maybe I'll find it. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Ron. Thank you. This is part of the Relational Implicit podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to relationalimplicit.com.